Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I've been reflecting a lot lately about how politics at its core is about storytelling. What narratives do we convey and how do those narratives influence human behavior in general and voting in particular? Are we a country that is making progress away from its tortured racist history to the extent that it will elect a black man as president? Or are we a country being overrun by foreigners of color who are changing the country and we need to resist these changes so that we can, quote, make America great again? Those are narratives that have dominated the past two decades, past few centuries, really. In addition to the storytelling, the worlds of politics and entertainment have long overlapped. And artists and entertainers frequently get involved in politics. Will I Am's 2008 video, for example, Yes We Can, came at a pivotal point in the presidential nominating contest after Obama had lost in New Hampshire and people worried that he'd lost momentum for the, for the nomination. That video, building on his New Hampshire concession speech, was seen by millions of people and helped rejuvenate the campaign. In recent years, the entertainment industry has been going through profound changes that impact society broadly in terms of how we get art and entertainment who makes it and who profits from it. This year has seen lengthy strikes by writers and actors. The writer's strike was finally settled, but the actors are still out on the picket lines. And there was a setback in the negotiations last week after a fair amount of optimism about it being resolved. So in today's podcast, we're going to dive into the intertwined worlds of entertainment and politics. And we have the added benefit of doing so in, a, in the month of October with an actress who is perhaps best known for playing a character on a TV show about a teenage witch. For this conversation, I'm joined as always by my co-host Charlene Chang, who is also the mom of a daughter around the age of the audience for the Teenage Witch Show. Hi, Charlene. Are you guys gearing up for Halloween and you want to introduce our guest? Hey, Steve. Yes, here at our home, we are definitely gearing up for Halloween. My daughter uh, often says it's it's her favorite holiday. And I say, really? Like, not Christmas first or you know any other holiday? No, she says it's Halloween. And it's not even a big candy fan. I think it's just the whole shebang. I, I always love it. It's really one of my favorite yes. holidays, she, too. Getting to dress her, up. She is her mother's daughter. <laughs> yeah. Getting to dress up, the excitement, the anticipation, getting to see the what the other kids are wearing, getting to see grown-ups dress up and have fun and, you know, be somebody or something different for a day and just the fantasy of it. And, of course, going out trick-or-treating and people giving free candy is um, not a bad, not a bad deal. Yeah. And just the fall, the autumn, you know, is such a wonderful time of year and it's just what we associate with the fall. And so I'm really excited today to be talking to our guest, Beth Broderick. Beth is an actress and activist. She's a veteran of the stage and screen and she's best known for her role as Aunt Zelda in the long-running hit TV series, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. She's also starred in a number of TV series and films, including Glory Days and Psycho Beach Party. Beth is an active volunteer and political fundraiser. Along with Steve, she served as a member of the board of directors for the Progressive Majority and has supported several local and national politicians in their campaigns. She's a founding member of Momentum, one of the first organizations in New York established to assist people with AIDS, and she's a founding member of the Celebrity Action Council of the City Light Women's Rehabilitation Program. That's a program that provides hands-on service to homeless women. And Beth, again, we are so happy and thrilled to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, well, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so it's great, so great to see you again, Beth. I'm glad we could 
bring our histories and this platform together for this conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's dive right in, Uh, Beth. The writer's strike just ended in September. I'm sure everybody who's listening by now already knows about it. And this was after five months of striking. A historic deal between the WGA and Hollywood producers was finally reached that will have long-lasting effects on the industry going forward. Actors have been on strike since July. Beth, what are the concerns that the actors had that led to this decision to strike? Well, there are an an awful lot of them. Like so many industries in America and perhaps around the world, um, most of the profit has been concentrated up into the very, 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 very teeny, teeny, tiny, tiny top. So not even the top 1%, but the top like half percentile, right, is making pretty much all the profit on show after show. I wrote an article about this for the Huffington Post years ago called Cavemen in Kashmir about how all these movers and shakers in Hollywood hold themselves out to be these, you know, impressive liberals and and in support of so many progressive causes. And yet when it comes to their own practices, uh, they behave like the robber barons. They, 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 you know, they, they profess to disapprove of. So it's been a long time coming. Uh, the inequities have just grown larger and larger and larger. The streaming services have really taken advantage of the fact that they're making so much product and yet they're paying less and less and less to the to the artists and creatives. And I think it has to do with a lot of these companies being, you know, subsidiary companies of larger and larger and larger corporations. And so they look at the bottom line and say, why are we paying artists? Why would we pay artists, right? So, you know, they make washing machines and all kinds of other things as well. So it's been a long time coming. Um, I think the concerns about artificial intelligence and people being able to, for instance, they could right now uh, take my voice and and turn it into a a voiceover for a commercial uh, without me ever being in the room. There's so many samples of my voice, you know, on record in, you know, film after film and and TV show after TV show that I wouldn't have to be present. Um, So that's a big concern. We don't want people reproducing our voices and faces. And Mm. um, it would be like plagiarizing someone's writing, you know, so so and they they want to be able to do it, particularly with with extras, which is, you know, these are all tricky questions. And it's a deep negotiation. And um, unfortunately, the people on the other side are not full of a lot of goodwill um, towards us. And so it's, it's, it's just taking a lot longer than, than we had hoped. And to be honest, they started shutting the town down in January. So most people, in anticipation of the strike, they were hoping to starve people out before they went on strike. And so many, many people have been out of work for a year. Thousands and thousands of actors will be kicked off their health insurance. It, it's, it's a, it's a, the struggle is real. It's a, it's a very difficult time. When you were talking about that title, Cavemen in Kashmir, I was thinking, well, that was probably, you know, significantly before the whole Me, Me Too reckoning, right? So I actually, I'm just going to read this. I've, I've just pulled the article up, right? We'll link to this in our um, show notes, right? So you open, you say, sexism? Corporate malfeasance, ageism, wage inequality. These are all issues at the forefront of the progressive battlefield. It is ironic that these very same issues are never tackled within our own industry. So I think that was 2009. So that was somewhat... A long time ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the more things change, the more things stay the same. Well, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I remember I did an interview for NPR and, uh, and I did the math for them. 
I said, let me just be very clear about what the math is. A job that used to pay $200,000 now might pay thirty. A job that used to pay $20,000 now will pay 2500 So when you're doing that kind of math, there's, it's not possible for people, the young people, the people starting it, breaking in, people that trying to build a career, it's not possible for them to make enough to survive no matter how much they work. I have movie children. I had one movie daughter. I made her dinner not too long ago, a couple of years ago, and and, and uh, she said, "Well, I'm still you know still doing my waitress job." And I said, "What do you mean you're doing a waitress job? Wow, you have a, you have a, a leading role on a, on a series on HBO." And she said, "Yeah, but they only pay me five thousand dollars an episode, and they only shoot twelve episodes, and you are paying an agent and a manager, and you know, so wow. so that math simply doesn't work." Wow, wow, right? So people are waiting tables in order to star on HBO. So that is absolutely unacceptable, <laughs> right? And you know, and it and it's a growing, growing problem. And so, you know, we even have agents that are telling their actors not to join the union um, because there's a lot of non-union work that they could be getting. And I tell those actors, well, that's true. So you could get a job here and there, but you'll never have a career. You'll never make be able to make a life of this if you don't join the union. And if the union can't win these kind of fights, so well, it's it's uh, it's interesting and ironic. You mentioned that HBO example. Right? I was listening to another podcast, and they were talking about the they're talking with the the producers of Succession and the decisions they had made about where to where to take the show originally. And they said we could have done it on other networks, but HBO offered us the chance to have helicopters. And if you think mm. about Succession, they have lots and lots of helicopters. But so that reflects the size and scale of the budget that they actually have. Right. So a network a company that has that level of resources has a, a lead actress who has to wait tables as well. That says mm-hmm. something about why you all had to go on strike. It says a lot about why we had to go on strike. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's it's been very confusing and, and there's been some contentions about some of the ways that it's been handled. But, you know, like, like I was saying, like I, I didn't, I didn't raise my hand and volunteer to lead. So it's not really up to me how they, how the people that are trying to make this work right. conduct themselves, yeah. right? I just have yeah. to be as supportive as I can possibly be, you yeah. know. So I'd like to maybe just pull back a little bit more, thirty thousand foot around, like the role of arts and entertainment and narrative um, and communication in social change and in politics, right? That's one of the key things that I try to lift up in my current book, um, How We Win the Civil War, is about how the, how the Confederates, the original and the current ones, have had a core tenant of distorting public opinion, right? I mean, starting with mm-hmm. redefining the uh, Civil War itself, uh, Gone with the Wind is, uh, you know, a, you know, ode to the Confederates in its, in its, in its mm-hmm. core. And so it's been a fundamental part. So as someone who's been involved both in the industry, but also very much in politics over the years. Right? So we, you know, connected when we were on the board of Progressive Majority. You know, you were trying to like help different candidates with their messaging and the organization. Be so. I just wonder if you could share some of your reflections around the role of narrative and communication in political and social change. Well, I think storytelling is is at the heart of it, and I think you know, I 
I have a, a blog uh, on Substack um, called Wit and Wisdom from a Woman of a Certain Age. And in my blog that will be coming out tomorrow, I was talking about how in show business, we're, we're getting better. We're, we're trying to do better. You know, like when I started in show business, it was a very white world. Okay. The, you know, the world of television was incredibly white. And you can see now that um, people of color are playing lead roles and essential roles in, in, in project after project after project. And that's, that's, that's real progress. And you have to hope that that, you know, the fact that we've had black men play the president of the United States on television is part of what paved the way for Barack Obama to be the president of the United States. These things, these things are correlative. They do matter. And, you know, you think about Ellen DeGeneres coming out, being the first person to come out as lesbian on television and being fired for doing so. And, and the progress that we have made since then in, in the ways that we depict people from the LGBTQ community, you know, like people with disabilities now often are hired to portray themselves, to, mm -hmm. to inhabit their own disability on screen as opposed to having an actor pretending to be disabled. So we are getting better. We have a long way to go, but I do think that these sort of things resonate both in our culture and in our politics. If you look at the fury on the right towards this simple movie, Barbie, mm. you know, it's almost it's almost hard to grasp that this movie could be such a problem for people on, on the far right, and yet they, they consider it a real threat just to talk about women wanting to be essentially appreciated for who they are for real, for how their feet are actually flat, <laughs> not built in heels, you know. And so all of these things do matter. And I think, I think honestly, since Trump was elected, there's been a severe dearth of political action on the part of people in Hollywood. Hmm. There's been a real hesitancy for people to speak out because he raised the stakes so high, he made he he blew things up and encouraged hatred and and encouraged division to such a degree that people that just simply want to make movies and television just started to go silent, radio silent about their feelings and their beliefs. And I think that we need to correct that. I think that people with with voices that can easily be heard need to be using them. You mentioned that. Um... I had not actually put together the sequence of the show 24, which I love and watch every episode of, and then preceding, you know, in fact, in the cultural conception where a black man is president. And so in 24, mm -hmm. that black man is president was played by Dennis Haysbert, right? And so you have a connection with him, didn't you, in terms of going back with him back in the yeah, day? He was my roommate in college for a while so um, because we were in Pasadena and we were at the Pasadena Playhouse. So that was where the American Academy was housed. And uh, Dennis had a really a big struggle trying to find somebody who would rent to him. He was this big, giant black man. And people were just like, yeah, no. And so because Pasadena, you know, has a deeply racist history. I know I, I know you know that. I mean, at one point, Colorado Boulevard was sort of the dividing part. You know, black people could live north, white people south, and never the twain should meet. And so I was like, well, you can sleep on my couch until we find something. Like he literally had to sleep on my couch until we could find him. Uh, a place to live. So, you know, and he and I have gone around talking to students about that, about mm. how, you know, that was our beginnings. And also the fact that neither one of us were considered by the school to have much potential. And yet we were the two oh, that yeah. had the most enduring careers, right? right? So, 
So we talk to students about that a lot. Like, don't let outward appearances of disapproval discourage you, you know, because you just have to keep pushing and you will find the right place. But but uh, they don't always know. They can't always read the tea leaves. Yeah. Sometimes they tell you you're not very good and it turns out they're wrong. Yeah. So That's some, some good advice. Beth, how did you get involved in political activism and, and when? Well, you know, I was about 23 years old and I started reading about this thing called gay men's cancer in New York City. Mm-hmm. And it was very alarming. People were dying very quickly for no reason. They became ill and then suddenly died, much like happened recently in the pandemic. And then at one point I read that there was a, a guy, a state senator, who was introducing a bill into the state Senate to quarantine all gay men. Wow. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, this wow. is no longer just an illness. This is a, this is, this is a, a civil rights matter. This is, mm-hmm. this is of dire importance that I show up. And so I showed up at the gay men's health crisis, which was one desk in a tiny little room at that time. And I, I, I said to the young man, I'm here to volunteer. And he was gobsmacked. He couldn't believe a woman would walk in the door. And he was like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, like he didn't take me seriously at all. And I was like, listen to me. I've been on my own since I was 16. Write my name and number down. Wow. If somebody needs me, they need to be able to call me. And so I got a call from Peter Avitable, who would become my partner. And he's like, are you a woman? Are you really a woman? I need a woman so bad. I need a woman. I need help. And so I was like, yes, yes, I'm really a woman. I'll help. I'll help. I'll help. And so that's, um, I went shortly after to serve Thanksgiving dinner at St. John's mm-hmm. in the village. And it was the first time I'd seen people who were that ill. Mm-hmm. And it was so sad. They were so young and almost nothing left of them, just skeletal. And the Carposi sarcoma all over one side of the face. And we had, I think, 13 boys that night, and we, we served Thanksgiving dinner. And I just, you know, Peter afterwards, he said, I need you, I need you, I need you. And I said, you have me for as long as you need, for anything you need. And we started this program, Momentum, that ultimately became Momentum, uh, because we recognized a, a real need for people to have not just um, medical support, but financial support. They were spending down their whatever little SSI benefits they could get on medications that weren't approved, right? So there was no money to eat or buy clothing. People were dropping 60 pounds in a month. They had nothing to wear. Wow. And so we had a free clothing store, a free grocery store. We had, And we also really made an effort to socialize people. So we brought them together for these big dinners and we got people to come and sing and, you know, just to peek keep people in community because mm-hmm. they were terrified to leave their home. And so during that time, we had a president named Ronald Reagan who wouldn't even say the word AIDS. We hadn't even discovered that term until when I started, but we did shortly after. And he never said the word. And so it became very clear to me, both at the city level, the state level, and the national level, that it really, really does matter who's in office, that it is that it is actually a matter of life and death, who, who we send to represent us um, at every level of government. And so there was no turning back from there. Don't you still do a Thanksgiving tradition? I do. I do a Christmas, oh, Christmas tradition. tradition. Yeah, I've been pr- providing the gifts for women in the emergency shelter at the Good Shepherd Home for Battered Women for... This will be the 34th year wow. my friends and I will gather to. Um, so there, we do, we, we really make an effort to make them beautiful and full of all new things, brand new things, 
things that you when you leave home with not even a toothbrush, you know. So we they're they're beautiful makeups and silk scarves and jewelry and things just to make them feel like, you know, I think it's just so important that they know that someone out there is thinking about them and and, and acknowledging and celebrating their humanity because yeah, we lose track of that with people who are lost and the we dignity. lose track of how deeply human they are, you know. Yeah. So you said there's no turning back on the political road. So what were some of the political fights or Waldner campaigns that you have been involved in? Oh my goodness. Well, I, I did, I can't even count the number of, I don't know if you remember this group that I was in called the Hope Let's. It was Nancy Stevens and Sarah Nichols and mm. me and Cookie Parker and, and Carol Coote. And we were determined to win back the Senate. And it was the year that Obama won and, and we did it. We managed. And we, we, we I mean, we, raised money for so many politicians that people just ran when they saw us walking down the street. They just ran the other way. You know, which is a great story about Brad Pitt, by the way. People are like, don't work with Brad Pitt. It'll cost you $5 million. Because like, he talks people into donating, like, everything they made in the movie to causes that matter to him. So, you know, it's interesting. He and I did a series together many, many years ago, and, and we've both been on similar paths of, um, of you know, civic um involvement about you know caring um i was a very early adopter of obama um very early uh, i had met his chief of staff pete rouse when i was lobbying for prostate cancer imaging technology research which is a big wow. mouthful of words to say but they couldn't get any male actors to do it so <laughs> so wow. i went and lobbied for prostates oh for gosh. almost yeah. a year but we did get that bill passed and i met pete rouse then and um so uh, that's how I got introduced to Barack Obama. And I was, as much as I loved the Clintons, I was absolutely convinced that it was Barack Obama was the right candidate at that time. But, you know, I'd worked hard on the Howard Dean campaign. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God, I raised a lot of money for Howard Dean. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, uh, of course, we threw our loyalties to John Kerry. And, you know, so I've been deeply involved in politics um, pretty much since the time of uh, the, since the 80s, since, uh, you know, I started, we started the AIDS program in 1984. And um, I did that for almost five years. I was 23. Didn't go on a date. Never did, you know, I, um, nobody wanted to date me because I ran an AIDS program. So. Wow. Well, yeah, I never went out on a date. So 23 to 28, I was very engaged in very serious, very difficult, very devastating social service delivery work. And um, I think when that is a, ha, has such a foundational, it's such a foundational part of who I am in the world. And, you know, that early time in my life, how I, what I observed and what I learned. And, you know, believe me, I met more than my fair share of heroes doing that work as well. But there were um, a lot of things missing from our politics that are still missing today. And so I'll never give up trying to trying to work towards a better union, a more perfect union. I mean, I don't care how crazy it gets. I'll never stop speaking out and I'll never give up. So when I when I met you, you had two dogs and their names, if I recall correctly, were democracy and social justice. No way. That's correct. And they yeah. hated each other. <laughs> you can't make that up. They you hated each other. Up. Social justice yeah. hated democracy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Social justice had to go live in Orange County with my sister. That's Come how much on. he hated <laughs> You can't make this up. Some, <laughs> some writer needs to write this into some sort of episode. That's t- that's too much gold. Right it was there. true. But I wanted to ask you, Beth, I'm, I'm just being blown away by hearing about your journey and, um, you know, what you intuitively knew and, and so bravely, I must say, engaged with at such a young age during a time, like you said, when there was so much fear and so much discrimination and along. So in your 20s, you're were also building your uh, acting career and continue to along with continuing to work towards social change. So I wanted to ask you, what do you see as the role of people with large platforms, including, you know, for sure, celebrities who are, you know, kind of in our culture worship, they are the most visible and often have the largest, most influential platforms. What do you see as the role and responsibility of people with large platforms when it comes to things like social change? And should people expect people with large platforms to speak up for social causes? Like voting, for example, voting rights or protecting democracy, or, you know, do we just say, well, to each their own and we, you know, just let everybody decide? I think it's essential. I mean, I think, and there's, there's wonderful young people like Billie Eilish, for instance, who has at every concert, she has people there registering voters at the entrance and the exit. I don't think I knew that. That's great. Yeah. She's determined to get people registered to vote. She doesn't really tell them who to vote for. She's Mm -hmm. not engaged in that, but, but, you know, and I think, um, young Taylor Swift has taken a few difficult stands and, Mm -hmm. and, um, but you know, there are also examples like the Dixie Chicks, now called the Chicks, of people who have been um, canceled, have been sort of turned out for standing up for what they believe in. I think I never got in trouble, even though I wrote for Huffington Post and I was very outspoken. I've always been very outspoken. But, you know, I came into this industry as someone that it was understood that I'd run an aid program for five years. So people really just go, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's just going to speak out. That's just how that's going to go. We can't hold it against her. You know, there's no, I am so associated with, uh, with my political points of view and the social service delivery that I believe in and espouse that, that it's, I don't consider it dangerous for me, but even if it was dangerous, I would speak out. But I think when Trump was running and when those kind of fevers ran high all around the nation people became afraid to speak out when when your followers and your supporters are threatening to kill a poll worker Mm. you have to understand that a celebrity is going to feel like an you know like a massive target you know in 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 those in that context and so a lot of people got quiet and unfortunately what did they say like that it's not always just the those who do evil, but those who stand by and watch that they are as guilty. And um, so I think all of us, whether they're an artist, an actor, a celebrity, or just, you know, um, just somebody who, who wants to put dinner on the table for their kids, all of us have to take a more active role in our politics. We just simply must. And I think a lot of that, going back to story, a, a lot of what happened on the right since Ronald Reagan is that people have been told that government doesn't work. And that there's no reason, hoping that they will feel there's no reason to vote. You know, it's all voter suppression. At the end of the day, every single thing that they do is to try to get you to not vote. And so the most patriotic thing you can do is walk into that polling booth, you know. And and I don't think people 
it's just not told. That story isn't told often enough. It's not told in the right ways. We're not getting that message across in the way that we really need to, because the the negative message around government, you know, negative energy um, and negative dialogue is very powerful stuff, and it's very hard to combat. And you know, being out there, like people think I'm a relentless optimist, and there's a, you know, almost a implication that I'm a Pollyanna behind that, and and maybe that's true. Maybe I am a bit of a Pollyanna, but I am also a believer that we just have to keep getting the message out that good government does matter, and and it and it is and it does exist, and there are good guys on every side of every argument. And the only way to settle these things peacefully is to vote and to let the majority prevail. And I think minority rule is their whole uh, the whole essence of the argument on the other side. 100%. And we, we have to counter that with faith that there are more of us who believe in government and who believe in the good that we can accomplish together than, than there are of those who consider minority rule to be uh, their birthright. Yeah. One of my mentors in the law had said that he could always tell the right thing to do as a litigator by looking at what their his opponent was doing and then doing the opposite. And so if the, <laughs> if the right is trying to stop people from voting, then that mm-hmm. should be a pretty good signal that we should really be encouraging Get more people, people to, vote. to vote. Yeah. I mean, all those years of living in Texas, that I lived in Texas for a while, and um, they have elevated voter suppression to an art. Exactly. It's an art format. And, and, and honestly, it has depressed the population. The population does feel like it's an uphill battle and they don't know if it's even worth trying. And you, know, and you have people also in our country who have come here from other nations where it might be more true that it doesn't matter if you vote, right? Sorry. Like, uh, you know, who come from these dictatorships or these places where that that are really ransacked by gangs. And so, and so to them, it really doesn't matter. And we've done a terrible job of reaching out to those communities of color and, and making sure that they know, and not just communities of color, communities from uh, expat communities of all kinds, uh, making sure that they know that here, it really does matter if you vote. Right. And, yeah. and it really does matter who's in office. And we really, um, we really are in charge of our own destiny. Oh, we just to follow up on that, just the last point on the Texas thing. I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, Rebecca Marquez, who was with the Human Rights Campaign in Texas for a number of years, and just reflecting on the work that's going on. And this thing about the voter suppression being an art form, but the way she was all talking about it is that the right wing in Texas is terrified. And they're terrified that things are going to change. They know that they don't have the majority support, so that's why they're so, you know, relentless. I'm, I'm monomaniacal about um, the voter suppression piece. Oh yeah, they're crazy. I mean, and they're attacking cities now. Mm-hmm. They're like Houston, we're sick of you voting. You know, so like you can only have one thing to put your ballots in, and right. you know, it, it's just. So when you're, you know, you get attached to a great candidate like Beto O'Rourke or, you know, these people who, who, who really go out there and fight the good fight. And it's just, it's, it's really, you know, it's demoralizing yeah. to see what the lengths that they will go to to keep people from voting. I mean, in Hispanic neighborhoods, I don't know if you know this, but they have giant billboards with a big judge's gavel on them. 
and it says if you vote, you go to jail. And of oh. course, vote illegally oh, is in illegally is the tiniest little letters, right? Wow. It just says you vote, you go to jail in oh, Spanish. I had no idea. With a big, with a big judge's gavel. So nasty. So, oh, wow. I mean, that's what I mean by it. it, 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 it it's institutionalized the voter suppression there, yeah. and yeah. and it's um it. Well, it's narrative and storytelling. That's that's storytelling. Yeah. The messaging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's storytelling. You know, in in in, in terrible, uh, terrible storytelling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> story. But yeah, they get that message out in communities of color very frequently in Spanish-speaking yeah. communities. Wow. And people keep asking me about the Hispanic vote in Texas, and I'm like, you know, they 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 there's a reign of terror towards the Hispanic vote um, being waged. And it works. Yeah. It keeps people out of the voting booth. Yeah. So we've got to tell a better story, a different story, exactly. and, you know, and try to help people of every cultural background understand that they really do have the power. Right. And I get, we're going to need to pivot in a moment just on that point. What's the plug at up, uh, a point and then an up on our upcoming podcast, right? So that what people don't, well, I didn't realize until I was doing the research in my book is that there are now actually more Latinos in Texas than whites. That it's, it's mm -hmm. 39, 39, slightly more Latino. And people don't think about Texas that way at all. And so this gets back to the suppression thing. Latinos and African-Americans are the majority of eligible voters. And then you add Asians. So I just think it's important to keep lifting that point up for people and then to plug our next podcast after this one i believe it is so we're going to interview stephanie valencia of equis who's been involved in trying to help progressives buy radio stations in latino communities to be able to get at this whole narrative storytelling yeah because that's where we need to be period on the radio in texas because even in the white communities that you know where football is worshipped, if you can get on those radio stations that cover the local games, if you can mm. get, like I always tell people, spend your money. Texas is huge; it's so much bigger than California, it, it, and it's so and there's no corridors of information. Okay, mm. so if you're in Dallas, the chances that you know what the mayor's name of Austin is are very slim, right? Mm. Whereas in LA, we know who the mayor of San Francisco is, yeah. and San Francisco know yeah. who the mayor of Los Angeles is. In right. Texas. Nobody has any idea, right? Mm -hmm. I, and I always kept thinking there has to be some way, like some kind of mayor's quarter periodical where the mayors of the major cities like contribute to like a magazine that we could get out to people because it, people just have no idea. It's so big. The expanse is so mm -hmm. tremendous that people mm -hmm. just don't really finding ways to communicate within that, you know, sphere is, is really difficult. And, you know, and it always goes back to me to, Lawn signs. I believe in lawn signs, mm -hmm. and I believe in going door to door. Yeah. You know, and people want to spend. They drop millions and millions of dollars on television in Texas, mm -hmm. and it just doesn't. It doesn't move the needle. Yeah, often what we talk about. I did want to pivot. I mean, it's all related to talking about the future and talking about younger young people. I thought it was really interesting when you mentioned your. You did you say your movie child? <laughs> Yeah, I have a lot of movie children. Yeah, yeah movie I, I've never heard that children. term They're before, and kids. I had to kind of go, "What does she mean?" Like, and then I was like, "Oh, I get it. It's a some another actor who is uh, uh, portrays a child in the story that you're um, that you're in the in the show." Uh, going back to what the writers and actors are fighting for right now, they're just to 
kind of contextualize my, my understanding is that they're basically fighting for the future and the direction, the future of the entertainment industry and protecting the rights of actors and writers going forward. And so that will have reverberations of implications for the younger generations, like you said, that are starting in the field now as they go through their career. Um, and I did want to give listeners some a little bit of background about your show in case some are not familiar with it. And by the way, my daughter and I and my husband just watched the first episode the other night and she's 12 and she was delighted and I was delighted to be able to watch it with her. And she was very excited that I'm getting to talk to you today. Uh, So the show that you were in was Sabrina the Teenage Witch and that premiered in 1996. Now Netflix has produced a new version for today's generation. It's called The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. And that is actually the name of the original Archie comic book series that the Sabrina characters comes from. Mm -hmm. And so The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina released in 2018 for this new generation. And then you guest starred on the show in season two. And I'm wondering, as you think about this next generation of actors and entertainers, and including the writers and those involved in in the industry, what are your hopes for the future of the industry and what are some of the lessons that you've learned that you would hope to pass along to them well my biggest hope for them is that they again we need to tell that keep telling them the story of why being in the union matters and why insisting on being paid union wages matters because there's a lot of producers trying to pay people cash under the table and low low wages you know as far as the union because they don't want to pay into pension and health And I want for those people to have the opportunity that I had to build a life that uh, has sustained me for over 30 years. I have pensions. I have health care, you know, and and these things really, really matter. Yeah. And, you know, trying to tell young people this story that it really does matter how you get paid now matters for your your whole life. It's going to matter. Right. And 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 what you demand for yourself now. Because a lot of things, commercials have all gone non-union. A lot of independent films have gone non-union. And so you're seeing these people over and over and again in commercials who, 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 did, who are not union members. So they're not even getting paid per use. So they might have made a fee like $2,500 for that commercial to run repeatedly day in and day out and day in and day out and day in and day out, week after week, month after month, year after year. Now that's just not a sustain, sustainable model right so that's why we have residual payments like when sabrina is still believe it or not it's the number three streaming show on peacock my show the original sabrina is still very popular in every country in the world it's on every day almost everywhere still there's a whole new generation of of viewers that just keeps coming you know year after year and we're so grateful for that i mean it's such a wonderful thing to see new people enjoying the show again you know all over again but imagine if um if we never got paid for that you know what i mean that yeah. that's you know the fact that people are still profiting from that show we, right. we should be allowed to participate in that yes absolutely you know, some degree and um and so many of the big studios now they they're working on buyouts so you only get paid once right and you don't get paid residuals and so they can continue to make a profit on that piece of material it like in a case like my show for 30 years they've been making money on it and uh but they want the right to just cut the actors off it with a one-time payment 
And so all of this really does matter in terms of the future for actors in the business. And I think it's really depressing if you're young. I mean, they were, you know, the, I have these movie children building, building their career, nominated for a Tony, doing this, doing that, oh, COVID. They get sent yeah. home, sent home for a year, brick wall, no, no work for you. And, you know, we've just kind of just started getting back our sea legs and then the strike. And so, you know, so people true. have been cut off for another year. So if you're young and you're listening to me and you're out there and you're frustrated and you're thinking, I don't care about the union. I'm just going to go do it. Mm. I just want to go do it. You're, you're only hurting yourself because at the end of the day, without the support of your union, you're not going to be able to make a life for yourself in the arts. It's just simply not possible. If you look at all the people that live in towns where they're like Austin, Texas, where, you know, most of the work is non-union, those people all have day jobs. They do not do it for a living. Okay, It's a, it's a hobby. And so if you want it to be more than a hobby for you, you know, you got to you got to trust in in the collective. And and honestly, the collective, the we of of it all is the key to our survival as a species it's a key to every single to solving every single problem that we face and this rugged individualism this i'm going to go do my thing and i don't care about you this is it's destroying the fabric of our nation and it will destroy the fabric of our industry if kids participate in it that way so that word to me is 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 the most important word of the moment collective because whether it's in talking about the environment or we're talking about, you know, political disaffection or we're talking about, you know, wage inequality, the only way to tackle these issues is as a collective. And uh, so that is what I urge young people to continue to be part of. Great. Um, so we're going to have to wrap. In terms of people staying uh, in touch and, fo- and following you and where you're out of keep track of your work and whatnot. So you mentioned that you're doing the Substack. Is that the main Mm-hmm. So and yeah, there's an article, usually a new article every seven to 10 days. I have about 5,000 subscribers and oh, wow. I would be more than happy to welcome some more. So everybody go to bethbroderick.substack.com. Um, mostly it's funny, not always. Sometimes I tackle big issues, but uh, mm-hmm. mostly it's just my observations on life and uh, try to have a good time with it. Yeah, and I I can uh, endorse it as a reader. I, I subscribe to it, and actually, people will send it to me periodically. But like, oh, did you see this piece that Beth wrote about? Etc. I think two or three people have done that actually to me. Well, that's nice to hear. Yeah, and then in terms of the duration of your work, um, as we <laughs> wrap this, so we were talking about who should we have on as future guest, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then I had mentioned well, context of the strike, and I had mentioned you know, in our relationship, and that we were friends, and then. Our associate producer, Fola Onifade, uh, she's seen both versions of the shows, but it was so fascinating to be meet on Zoom. She's in North Carolina. Her eyes lit up when your name came up. And mm. Fola was born in 1994, and that year show premiered in 96, and still it's still having this resonance and this impact. So I wanted yeah, to share that it's, with you. Know, and, and the other thing I do so much of is the Hallmark Christmas movies and Lifetime mm-hmm. Christmas movies. And, and that's another world that I'm just so privileged to be a part of because it just makes people so happy, yeah. you know? I mean, people stop me on the street and they're like, oh, I loved Christmas Town," <laughs> And it's just so, um, it's so moving to me to be able to, to bring joy to people and to be yeah. able to, you know, 
participate as an artist in in that way is just an honor really well we appreciate your work we appreciate your joining us on the on the podcast definitely thank you so much that's all the time we have for today thank you for listening to democracy in color with steve phillips please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts sharing with your friends tweeting at democracy color and at steve p tweets and finding us at democracy in color on facebook or instagram you can also keep up with all things Demco by subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. It will help others to find our show. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production. Our producer is Olivia Parker. Bola Onifade is our staff writer and associate producer. Charlene Chang is our editor and co-host. Special thanks to April Elkier for Quality Check. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time... Watch Sabrina the Teenage Witch and keep the faith.